Welcome to the audio podcast for the main service of Northridge Church. Our hope is that this will be a tool that blesses and challenges you in your walk with Jesus. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, you can visit us at nrchurch.ca or join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until we meet, be blessed and enjoy the word for today. Um, I saw Travis and Linda celebrate first. What month? July. Uh, and as special as they are for winning this this incredible competition. Ryan who? Oh, I was like, Ryan Douglas is like September 11th. What are you talking about? Oh, that's cool. Well, that you think that's cool, but Adam Thompson's birthday is today. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Adam. Happy birthday to you. Well, speaking of birthdays, how's that for a smooth segue? Um, September 10th. I know we don't normally do announcements in the beginning of August for September, but this is big. Our 15th birthday is happening on September 10th, and so we want that to be put firmly on your calendar, but the week before that is also special. It's Labor Day long weekend. It's going to be a family Sunday, much like this, but it is student Sunday. It's going to be run by the kids. We're going to be hearing from uh, our kids who have gone off to camp. Kids, you're hearing this for the first time. This is what's going to happen. You are going to be given an assignment question, something for you to think about while you're at camp. And then when you return from camp, if you return safely from camp, we are going to have you respond and share the answer to your question. All right? It'll be pretty simple. We'll try and kind of meet you where you're at, make, make it not too challenging. And then coming even closer to the present, to today, did you get your Timbit? Hopefully you got your Timbit. It was by the coffee. If you didn't, there might still be some more after. Um, that was not communion, just so you know. We'll be doing that a little bit later. But also today, uh, the community from our Spanish-speaking service, which happens at 1 o'clock every Sunday, they are cooking tacos for you for lunch, and you can have tacos by donation, and it's all going to help send kids to camp. Uh, I can't wait to tell you the final story about uh, the fundraising and the kids and volunteers we're sending to camp this year. It's, it gets wilder every week, and I'm so excited. Um, okay, I know you guys are waiting. You are so ready. Man, our ushers have been super ready, but I'm, not, I'm actually following a script. We will get to you. Um, today, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be the great Bazzini. Pause for sad sounds. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story. But before I do, I want your help praying for Costa Rica kids. So we do this every week. We put up a slide, and uh, we are intentionable, intentionable? We are intentional as a congregation to come together and pray for something specific. So Costa Rica Kids is a child sponsorship program. This is John and Lana uh, Marenko, who are in Costa Rica, and they run this child sponsorship program. Um, I've said a lot about it in the past. Today, I'll just tell you, it's an incredible program where many, many kids are blessed with everything they need for their school year. Uh, and so kids who would not necessarily be able to afford or get to school um, are, are getting a good education because of Costa Rica kids. And so we want to pray blessings on them. Uh, I'll tell you that they need special just uh, prayer for peace, for God's presence in their life right now. We'll pray that. And I don't normally like to... Um, uh, take the focus off our prayer item, but we've, many of you know Terry and Pat Scott from our congregation, um, and they are both in the hospital right now. Um, Pat is, is dealing with vertigo, and Terry just started his radiation therapy and for his cancer, and it's gone, it's been difficult for him. So they're literally both in the hospital right now for two different reasons, and so we want to lift them up as, in prayer as well. So this is how we do it. We are activating you right now, so switch on. I don't know what you have to do, pull your ears, switch a switch or whatever, you are being activated in prayer. And this is an opportunity for us to pray intentionally both for Costa Rica kids and for Pat and Terry Scott. Um, once I feel like there's been enough time given, uh, I'll close in prayer and transition us out, okay? So let's spend some time. If, if you have something you want to share in prayer, please stand and pray loudly so we can all hear you.
Father, we're so grateful that you know us better than we know ourselves. And we think of just even the, the four people who we're lifting up in prayer today are four incredibly unique individuals. The things that, that Terry is dealing with with her vertigo and, excuse me, Pat with her vertigo, Terry with his, his reaction to the radiation, and then John and Lana and what all the things they encounter on the mission field. Father, we know that each of their stories is so intimately and uniquely different, but we know that you know them better than they know themselves. And, and similarly, we know that you know how to care for them better than we can care for ourselves. And so we commit them all into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. My thing, oh, it came back on, thank goodness. Okay, I know you're very excited about the story, but first, I want to tell you about another thing that we do every week, and that is we receive tithes and offerings. Now, just wait, that's almost your cue at the back. Okay, I want to talk, we don't usually teach through why we take this time for tithes and offerings, um, but there, there are a couple of reasons. In fact, I could never do it justice in just such a short amount of time. But one of the things we always want to be active in doing is we want to, and because I know I need to, remind myself that God needs to be on the throne of my life. The, the word says that he should be first. We should love him more than anything else. Now, I don't know about you, but I love it when I've got enough money in the bank. And I get anxious if I don't have enough money in the bank. And so sometimes that can become my focus and I can feel safer if I have more money in the bank. And if I'm not careful, money can be what I put my trust in. And so money is one of those really specific and almost worldwide transferable things that people just kind of struggle with holding on to. And so every single week, we provide an opportunity for you to declare that, God, I trust you even more than my bank account. And we're going to be obedient in giving our tithes. And we're going to bless people with our offerings above and beyond our tithes. And so we do that every week. And so I want to pray for us as we receive the offering. And then we're going to transition into something new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your place on the throne. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. Whether we acknowledge you there or not, you are Lord of all. Father, we thank you for the way you provide, that you are Jehovah Jireh. And, and even sometimes when we feel like, oh man, I, I, don't, I don't know that you've provided enough, we know that you care for us and you will provide. And we've heard the miraculous stories of your provision. And so we thank you for that blessing and, and today in obedience, we give back just a portion, that first portion of what was already yours. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, and just to explain further, the offering bags are going to go around. That's to put money into, not take money out of. Just to be really clear. All right. So as that goes around, I want to introduce um, the couple whose story we're going to hear from today. Now, this couple is very close to me. I am very, actually, I got a really uh, a neat hug this morning. Somebody told me that today I was on their gratitude list. That made my day. It was very, very encouraging. I am incredibly grateful for this couple because they gave me my wife. Uh, they brought her into this world, and uh, they cared for her. I've cared for her longer now. I don't want to brag or anything, but uh, she has been, I don't want to say mine because I'll get in trouble, but uh, uh, we've been together for now longer than she was fully under their care. But uh, I am very thankful to them, and I'm really thankful um, for their availability to come and share their story. It will be a blessing to all of us. Without any further ado, I'm going to invite Barry and Carol Keating to come on up. We'll get you some mics. Actually, uh, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll say is Barry and Carol lead our local Celebrate Recovery. In fact, I don't know what your title is for Celebrate Recovery broad on that. Broad that. What is it? Sure. I'm uh, the Celebrate Recovery rep, 
for the lower mainland and for Vancouver Island. There you go. So one of the things that they teach strictly in CR is not to talk over each other. It's a very good skill to learn. And so they're going to demonstrate that and be really good at that, I'm sure. I'm still learning that, David. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, man, the rule goes out with husband and wife, though. <laughs> this is the exception. All right, so we have this kind of format that we've been working through where we ask three questions. What was life like in your, what was your life like? What were your lives like before you met Jesus? How did you meet Jesus? And what difference has he made in your life? So let's begin with, what was life like? And again, I know you're two very different people, so this isn't like the story of your relationship before Jesus. This is, what was your life like before Jesus? Oh my goodness. Um, we were a family in dysfunction. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, but uh, you know, during my teenage years, all the, the stuff didn't seem quite so cool. So I decided to go party with my friends, <laughs> but I still went to church on Sunday, you know, asked for forgiveness for the next week. And uh, that was kind of my life as a kid. Um, it started my uh, sort of pathway to people pleasing. I was, uh, I wanted to please my parents. I wanted to please the church folk but I also wanted to please my friends. And so that was, that was that part of it. So that was my childhood. My parents were wonderful. They were Bible people all the way through. And uh, it, it was my choices, right, that weren't, weren't good. So from there, um, <laughs> I met him. <laughs> and uh, he was a professional musician, all, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, we got married. And he he came off the road and we started a family. And we never uh, thought that our lives were a problem uh, until um, addiction entered into our lives. And I kind of was naive about it, but um, it, it created a lot of dysfunction in our home. And so this was our lives. It was like I was determined that we were going to look perfect to the outside world, but we were a mess on the inside. And I knew about Jesus, but I did not have a personal relationship with him, uh, which I didn't realize I didn't have a personal relationship with him. So I uh, was raising three kids, you know, doing all, all that I do, volunteering at the school, and then I decided to go back to school to uh, get my degree in interior design. So I did. And then I apprenticed. And during my apprenticing time, I uh, would go out to customers, find out their wants, their needs. I was working for a company at that time, but we also, would bring in a flooring company when uh, we, we had that need to uh, meet with our clients. So the flooring company was run by a man who was a Christian, but doggone it, he was also an evangelist. <laughs> <laughs> and he pointed out very clearly to me that uh, I did not have a relationship with Jesus. Sure, I believed in God, I was a pretty good person, but that was the piece that was missing. So as my life progressed, it was just escalating into more of a mess. And then one morning I was headed for work and somehow I ended up at his office and I received Christ that day. Now, I love to say that I wish the line read and they lived happily ever after, but it didn't quite work that way. So I'm going to let you talk about your salvation story. Yeah, I'm so used to introducing myself. I'm going to do it anyways. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus who has struggled with alcohol, anxiety, anger, codependency, and worry, and my name is Barry. Hi, Barry. Thank you. Now I feel okay. Yeah, I was an only child. I was uh, in Saskatchewan. I was born. I was brought up a Catholic. We always went to church. I believed in God, but I believed that I was always not good enough to be what I was supposed to be. Uh, when I was in high school, I, uh, I was always uh, a loner. I didn't have many friends. So in high school, we were watching a television show. This will date me, The Ed Sullivan Show. 
and the Beatles came on, and I loved that. I loved the girls screaming. I loved the music, so we decided to start a band. We did. When I graduated from high school, we went down and recorded in Los Angeles, and we were fairly successful. I got to add, my dad and my mom, my dad was an alcoholic. He was physically and verbally abusive to my mom, and he was only verbally abusive to me. So I always thought, I'll never drink because my dad had disrupted our home. But when I started traveling in the band and recording, I started to drink, and I found that when I drank, because I had always been a loner, I was more comfortable with people, and I felt like I fit in, and uh, it was just easier to communicate. So uh, that was all well and good for a while, but before long, the drinking and the partying became more important than the dream of music I had. Uh, so I was in trouble already, but I didn't realize it. On one of my trips back to our big city of Regina, I met Carol at a party, and she could keep up with me in the partying, and she could sing. So we started to date, got married, and moved to Edmonton. Uh, when our first child, Carolee, was born, <laughs> before she was born, Carol said, I'm going to quit smoking, and I'm going to quit drinking. And I said, sure, I'll do it too, thinking she would never do it. And she did stop, but I couldn't stop. And I realized I was an alcoholic. I got arrested for impaired driving. I got arrested for shoplifting, all that kind of stuff during my addiction, but I still didn't stop. Uh, when our third uh, child was born, Carol confronted me, and uh, I did stop drinking for about eight years. We got transferred out to BC, and everything was going good, but I had never dealt with anything. Uh, when we were in BC about 1986, right after Expo, Carol came home from work one day and said our marriage was done, she was through, didn't want any more to do with this. So I was devastated and I started to drink again. So we had three or four months of complete heck in our house with the kids and it was a disaster. And then she came home from work another day and she told me she had accepted Jesus. I didn't know what to think about that. I didn't know whether it was good or bad. I was so confused, uh, I was a mess. But she said, I'm going home to visit my folks to re refocus my life and just reevaluate everything. And she left me. So I had these three kids, but I had the brains to stop drinking. And I relied on my buddy from our band days, Richard, who lived out here. He just recently passed away of dementia a year ago. And he uh, listened to me, prayed for me. And then one night in my backyard, I accepted Jesus as my savior. And I felt like everything had been lifted off my chest. And uh, we'll carry on from that afterwards. Things were still not fantastic after that, even though we were Christians. So we started going to Northside, and we were baptized, and we got involved on the worship team. I was on the board and all kinds of stuff. So I'll leave it at there. That's awesome. Um, and I love how you've kind of set this up, because the question is, what difference does Jesus make? And I know there's bumps in the road still ahead. <laughs> it's not like, okay, everything smiles and giggles from here on out. Uh, but I know, that he's, I know that he's made a difference in your life. And so I'd love to hear about the difference that he's made in your life. Sure. Yeah, that, that was me. I, I thought it was all going to be <laughs> bumps and giggles <laughs> from there on in. I, I didn't dream that we could be Christians, believers in Jesus, and still had this kind of dysfunction in our lives. And, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was really, really hard. And now we're in a situation where we're in a church, uh, we're leading worship, I was teaching Sunday school, all these wonderful things, but at home was the dysfunction. And uh, I, again, was, it was pride for sure, was not going to share anything with anybody about what was going on in our, our home, and I was really good at it. I, I you know, I could make believe that, that all things were okay. Um, so, Jesus was always there, and I, you know, I'd, I'd write, I'd, I'd think, wow, how can I, how did I end up here? How am I in so much pain? And I would just beg for him just to release uh, some of the, the emotional pain that I was going through. So then, um, we're going along like this, and then along came Celebrate Recovery. I have to bring it up, because um, this ended up being the place where I could be myself. And it took me a long time to figure that out. Now, I have to clarify, you know, I see Celebrate Recovery as the ER of the church. This is the emergency room. This is the place where 
when you know you know you believe in Christ but you just don't know how to change you just don't know how to get out of that rat race that you're in and so for us <clears throat> it's all Jesus centered the Bible is the main focus and I thought wow there's a lot of people just as screwed up as I am you know and, and that for me was like Whoa, and James 5.16, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. I was already saved, but the healing needed to happen. Yeah. And uh, that's what that did for us. But it was all through Jesus. I mean, my heart was open to him. He's the one that breathed in this program to allow the healing to happen. So that was the difference that Jesus made in my life. So, like I said, uh, I was baptized, I was on the board, I was doing worship, uh, but I continued to relapse. And I remember going to board meetings and I was loaded. I remember going on the platform doing worship and I was loaded. And I felt like a real hypocrite and a real jerk. And here I am, a Christian, I've accepted Jesus, I've given my life over to him and I'm still struggling with this. And I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody in the church. I didn't feel like I could talk to the pastor. And I felt horrible. So we went through years and years of relapse. I never thought I was ever going to quit drinking, to be quite truthful. Relapse, clean and sober. Relapse, clean and sober. And then finally, uh, when my oldest grandson was due to be born, David, David uh, we had been at an event where my other daughter, Tawny, had just announced that she was pregnant. We came home and sat in the driveway, and Carol looked at me, and she said, this has got to stop. We can't keep doing this. And I knew it. I knew it. And uh, I went to uh, Alouette Addictions, and I did the 12 steps, and I've been clean and sober now for 23 years. But, <laughs> but just because I was clean and sober didn't mean I had my whole life together. I had so many character defects because I had been drinking for so long, and I didn't realize it until I got into celibate recovery. And I started working the 12 steps, and I did uh, the 12 steps. I've done them about 15 times. Every time I do them, God reveals something to me in my character that he wants me to work on. I know our churches are full of people that are hurting with something, nothing to do with addiction. I know there's addiction in churches too, but everybody's suffering from some kind of pain. And, and if you need to get help to walk through anything, Celebrate Recovery is the place to come and get support. And I believe that with all my heart. Uh, I don't think I have anything else to say. <laughs> uh, you guys have said it all. I, I am so blessed. And let me just say it in this final prayer. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful that you are God who loves to work in the light. And um, I, I know that uh, Barry and Carol have shared their story before. And so there is a little bit more ease. But sometimes it's hard to to share all the, the details. Sometimes it's hard to, to share the story for, for fear that people will look at you differently or, or think of you differently. But we know that you love to work in the light. You are a God of truth. And so when the truth is spoken as it was here today, Lord, we know and we believe that you will redeem that and this will be a blessing to people here in this place. They will know that they are not alone. We know that the enemy's plan is to isolate and make us feel like we're the only ones who are dealing with the things we're dealing with. And your job, or your, your ministry is unity and community. And you bring us around with other people who are struggling, but who, who see a hope and who have a reason for the hope that's within them. And so, Father, we thank you for the revelation of the hope that Barry and Carol have because of you. And we pray a blessing of hope on everybody who's heard this message both in real life today and online today and later. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. You guys are amazing. Give them a hand. Yeah. You just leave it on the chair. It's fine. On the chair. Thank you. That's my in-laws. Uh, I, I hadn't heard some of those parts of the story. That was an additional blessing for me. That's awesome. Um, okay, well, we're going to transition now. Today, I'm going to read a story, and in the background, there's going to be some pictures. Uh, it's the story of the life of King David, and 
one of the first things I, I want to make clear is this is an historical figure. This is somebody that has walked this planet, has, has walked this life, uh, walked on this world. This is not a Middle-earth Tolkien creation. Uh, this is a real person who has done these things in real life. This story, if you want to read along, and um, actually you won't be able to read along on, on the text on here, so if you want to read along, you can find it in 2 Samuel 11. Before I was, we were worshiping as, and, and Jenna was leading us, and I, I got this idea. This could be a terrible idea. But I want to tell you a story to make you mad. Okay? Are you ready to get mad? Once upon a time, this is not a real story, by the way. Once upon a time, uh, there was this poor man. And this poor man had almost nothing in the world except for this one little lamb. And this is a lamb that he had raised from birth, would have hand-fed it uh, right until it was ready to feed on its own. It would sleep next to him. They would share each other's warmth at night just to kind of get through the cold nights. And he loved this lamb like a child. At the same time, there was this very rich man who lived in the same area. In fact, he was kind of lord over that area. And he had the sheep on all the hills. He had, he had full-grown and the baby lambs. He had more sheep than people that he had to manage. And, and he had really not just that. He had kind of everything at his disposal. He could have gone out and bought a hundred more sheep if he wanted to. And one day, this rich man had a very special guest coming to visit him, and he wanted to feed him, and he wanted to feed him a really special meal. But he was kind of greedy, and he didn't want to give up any of his own lambs, and there was somebody in his kingdom who he knew had a lamb. And so he went to the guy's house who we were talking about before. He went to his house, and he took that lamb, and he killed the lamb, and he served it for dinner for his guest. And that's the end of the story. Isn't that infuriating? The injustice of that story? We're going to revisit that story in just a bit, but it's going to get told with a different context. So as I tell you this story, I'm just going to read from the Bible and I'll elaborate a little bit. There are some main characters that I want to introduce you to. First of all is King David. So now I should be clear, this is not a photograph of King David. I don't think the technology was available. So this is not the real King David. This is my... It's, he's not AI. He's, he's, I just went through the internet, tried to find somebody who I thought would make a good King David. Good looking guy. Uh, he's got a crown, so he's obviously a king. Uh, king David was the second king of all time for Israel. So if you go back in history, remember that at one time, God was literally the king of Israel. He governed the people of Israel by speaking through his prophets, and he led them that way. But he was the king until the people of Israel were like, well, you know what? Our neighbors have good-looking, handsome leaders that wear crowns, and, and they get to follow them. We want a king like that. And so God knew it was a bad idea, but they, they, they got Saul as their first king. And Saul did a terrible job, and so God anointed and then later appointed David as the king of Israel. So he's the second king of God's chosen people. But before he was king, he was the boy in the story who, remember, had his sling and he fought the giant Goliath and defeated Goliath. And there's lots more I could say about David and his growth into this role as king. He was remembered or will be remembered as a, as a good king. In fact, he was described, uh, or he kind of described himself as the apple of God's eye, that God loved him and him as a king. And it was in Psalm 17 that David was described that way. Then the next character we have is this beautiful lady here named Bathsheba. Again, not the real Bathsheba. But this is a picture of a lady who I think might look like Bathsheba. She was a woman of Jerusalem. And she was married to Uriah, who was a really good man. He was a high-ranking military soldier who worked for King David. So let's meet this fellow Uriah. Again, not the real Uriah. Um, and Uriah, he is this elite soldier in David's army. And, and David and his military might was well known, and it was so good, it was actually a problem for David. We'll learn a, lot, a little later. But this Uriah was an elite soldier in David's army. And then finally, we'll see this fellow a little bit later. 
He looks a little bit more like me. This is Nathan, not the real Nathan. Uh, he is a court prophet and advisor to King David. So he is somebody handpicked by David to whisper in David's ear and give him good advice. He was a trusted man for David. So we begin in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, and it goes like this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. First thing I want to point out, first of all, I didn't realize I knew there was football season, hockey season. I didn't know there was like war season. But there was war season for King David. But the thing that was weird was normally the king goes with his armies. He is the leader. He is a leader of his armies. But in this season, David got a little complacent, a little bit lazy. And David stayed at home. And because normally his schedule would be full of warring and battling, now his schedule was cleared, he was empty. This was the beginning of a problem. David was bored. Have you ever gone, and I'll talk to the kids, but adults, you know this too. You, you went over as a kid to play with your friend. And if you're playing a board game or you're playing, acting out a game down in the ravine of your, your I don't know what, what kind of playing. If you're riding bikes, it all goes well until you're done that. And then you look at each other like, well, we did that. What are we going to do next? That's always the beginning of usually a really great story, but a, a story where you do something stupid because you're bored. And that's kind of David's story. He was bored and was about to do something really stupid. Verse two says this, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now you need to understand that the style of the houses that day was that the top of your house wasn't like this pitched roof. It was often flat, and it was a place to kind of hang out. In this case, uh, David was walking around, and Bathsheba was having a bath, and David saw her. King David, uh, again, verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman, like, who's that? And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house. We'll go on to Bathsheba again. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Verse 6 says, so David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab, Joab sent Uriah to David. Now this is where David was going to start to make a plan to cover up the problem that he created. All right, so we move on to verse 7. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were going and how the war was going. Just make it a little small talk. This was David's awkward attempt to pretend that nothing had happened. David gave every appearance that things were normal when before God, nothing normal, when nothing was normal and nothing was right. Verse 8 says this, Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And when he said wash his feet, it was, it was more than that. It was go home, just make yourself comfortable. This was David's plan that Uriah would be so happy to see his wife again that they would be together as husband and wife. And perhaps there could become some confusion as to whose baby she was pregnant with. And it carries on. It says, And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. This was a gift of food that, that David kind of gave him, a little care package. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. The king told Uriah, you can just go be with your wife. Just have a little bit of downtime. Relax. Wash your feet. Here's some food for you just to, to enjoy each other's company. But Uriah was so, like, he was so full of integrity. He couldn't, and we'll actually we talk about this in a second. He couldn't do that because something was happening in the back of his mind. We'll talk about that in just a second. Verse 10 says, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? David's plan was not going as expected. 
Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Even though Uriah was given permission to relax, to take a day off, enjoy the company of his wife, Uriah knew that God's very presence, when he talks about the ark um, being on the, on the battlefield, he's talking about God's literal presence is out there. I, I should be protecting it. I should be at war around this. I should be there. My people are there and they're in danger. How can I go and relax and be with my wife when I know that this is happening? I can't. He was so full of integrity that he just couldn't do it. He was so committed to the king and the country, he couldn't resist. He couldn't rest, excuse me. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, well, you remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. This is almost David saying, okay, you know what? You're right, I'm going to send you back, but just stay one more day. And this was, again, David trying to get Uriah to relax and stick around and hopefully he would spend some time with his wife. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he, in, he ate in his presence and drank. So that evening, so, excuse me, so that, he, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David's next trick was to get Uriah to the point where maybe his guard would get let down. Kind of like where David's guard was let down, where he was bored. He let himself get bored. He wasn't paying attention to the things he should be doing. He wanted Uriah just to relax and let his guard down. And hopefully Uriah would go and be with his wife. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Hi, Simone. <laughs> um, so this was David's next plan. He could not convince Uriah to go and cover up his sin by being with his wife. And so David's next part of the plan was to have Uriah killed off. And he was sent into the thickest part of the battle. And then it was orchestrated that the other men would fall back, leaving Uriah to die. And sure enough, he died. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. That means she was very sad. And when the mourning was over... David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. At this point, it looks like David's evil plan had all worked out. The next verse is incredibly impactful. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is one verse that's just so packful of meaning, but there's another verse that's even more. So David was a king who enjoyed the blessings of God because he was normally so obedient. He followed God's ways. Now, David was living in a place outside of God's blessing. He was, if you imagine God's plan and blessing for David as this umbrella, David was spending time right now outside of God's blessing. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. Enter the old man, Nathan. This is verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now remember, Nathan was David's advisor and prophet. He was there to help David run the country God's way. He was God's voice in David's life. And he came to him and said to him, you might recognize the story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So isn't this weird? Nathan, who was David's advisor, came to David and told him this fictitious story. Well, David's response goes like this. This is verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He was furious. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. David was justified in his anger. As king, he should see justice done in his nation. This was a terrible thing that the rich man had done. Justice needed to be done. And this is when Nathan turned to David and he said this. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and, given, and taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of, his, uh, of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Nathan is essentially telling David the consequences of his sin. Now this is perhaps the most powerful verse. Well, definitely in this story. And it's verse 13 and it says this. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is a, just a short but it's both beautiful and powerful. You'll notice David didn't argue. He didn't try and justify what he did. He didn't try to make excuses for what he did. I don't know about you, but when I get in trouble, I, I, get, I start to think about the reasons why I might have done it, why, why it's not my fault, or maybe why it's not such a big deal. I try and, I try and get myself off the hook with my arguing or my... I, I build a defense. But David said... I have sinned against the Lord. He calls it what it is. He, he doesn't hide anywhere. He declares, he confesses it. I have sinned against the Lord. And it's so powerful. And so David, excuse me, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Um, Nathan let David know that God would forgive his sins. However, there would still be consequences for the sin. Now imagine, again, I'm talking to the kids, but perhaps some of you can relate. Imagine you have just received this brand new gaming system, the, the latest, best gaming system on the market, okay? And you've just been given it. And then on the first day you're playing Something goes badly, and if you're like me, you kind of lose your mind. And you freak out, you pick up the gaming system, you throw it against the wall. And your parents, who have just given you that gaming system, are so disappointed. And you might realize what you did was wrong. And you might say, oh, I am so sorry. And this is a picture of, like, parents saying, you know what, I forgive you. But the gaming console is still broken. There are consequences to that, that moment of sin, and David would have to live those consequences out. All right, we're at the end of where I'm going to go in the story. But there are three things I want you to notice about this. Over the summer, we've been looking at the lives of, of people in the Bible, and, and we've looked at things that have gone wrong. They've gone off the rails. They've gone in a way they shouldn't have gone. And this is another good example of this. But we also look at how God can use these, these times. In this case, 
David's reaction to being caught in sin is something we can learn from. It's still gross to think about this king ever being thought of as good. And in our minds, in our human minds, what he's done is unforgivable. But his reaction is a beautiful reaction to being caught in sin. He confesses it. He, he, he identifies, I have done the wrong thing. And he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't argue. He doesn't try to defend himself. He knows that his reaction was a good one. Second thing to notice is God's forgiveness. And I didn't necessarily do a great job of explaining um, what exactly God did here. It's, it's interesting. Um, in Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 103, which is a psalm that David wrote, he describes what happens when God takes our, our sin. When we ask for forgiveness, he takes that sin and he throws it as far as the east is from the west. And if you want to know how far that is, east goes forever that way, west goes forever that way, they're forever apart. It, it is gone, gone. So the second thing I want you to notice here is that God forgives even what would look like an unforgivable sin. Now, I would imagine, we don't see this in Scripture, but I would imagine there, have been, there would be times when the enemy would whisper in David's ear, hey, you remember what you did? How could you be a king of, of God's people when you, did, when you did that in the past? And the enemy likes to remind us of our sin. And I'm sure there are times when David had a hard time forgiving himself. But God forgave him instantly and completely. And that's the second thing. The third thing is this. There are consequences for sin. Even though David had been forgiven by God, he was right with God, there were consequences. And if you read on into the story, you're going to see how miserable some of these consequences were for David because of what he had done. Things were set in motion that were awful in his life. Okay, at this time, I'm going to, we're going to transition into a time of communion, which might seem like a bit of a, a harsh turn, but really they go together very, very well. And I want to explain communion maybe a little more fully than we normally do. And to do that, I, I want to give you some backstory. Communion began, it was kind of instituted or, or started in Jesus's final days. In fact, uh, on Saturday nights, we're reading through the life of Jesus according to the book of Matthew. And we're getting closer and closer to the time when Jesus would be arrested and crucified and killed on the cross. And this is just shortly before he was arrested. And one of the things I like to remind our people of is that Jesus knew this was going to happen. He knew he was going to be arrested. He was going to be crucified on the cross. And he wasn't hiding. He wasn't planning his escape route. He was teaching. He was discipling. He was, he was telling his disciples about how they needed to live after he left. He had kind of been hinting that he was going to have to go away. But he, he was wanting to teach them about what to do after he's gone. And I want to say something else. Another note. What we're about to do here, and in fact, um, when you're ready, yeah, actually you guys can come forward, and we're going to get our ushers to pass. Are you going to go somewhere else? No, it's all good? They're going to pass out two things. You're going to have a cracker and a cup. I, I would like for you to hold on to both of them. Just hold one of each um, while, while we're doing this. And this is what I want to say about this. This is something very special and sacred. And Here at Northridge Church, I think we probably do grace very well. I'm wearing sandals. I'm not all properly dressed and everything. We, we, we love to talk about God's grace, His mercy, His love for us. And sometimes we do it at the expense of reverence. Sometimes we don't show God how special he is. This is a special and sacred time. This is something that we do, much like what we did at the beginning, to show that we are remembering that God is God. He is God over everything. He is the king. When we eat the cracker and drink the juice, we are taking time to be right with God. And this is another thing that the Bible talks about, is that, this is something we shouldn't do with a sinful heart. There should be something that happens in our lives right now 
where we take stock of our relationships with each other, we take stock of our relationship with the Father, and we pray for forgiveness for, for the times where we're not right with God. We pray for God to forgive us, to bring us into proper alignment with Him. We want to receive communion with a heart that is right before God. And the only thing that can make it right is what we're actually remembering here today. If you want to read along, the verses that we're going to take from when it comes to communion, it's Matthew 26, and it's verses 26 to 28. And the first one goes like this. Now, as they were eating, and I'll just remind you, this is the picture that you've probably seen on, on paintings on the walls of Grandma's house or something like that, of the Last Supper. This is the last time Jesus and the disciples were eating together. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. So instead of eating the bread, he kind of held the bread up. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And he says, take, eat, this is my body. And what he's saying there is this is a symbol of my body which will be broken for you. And so what we do when we share communion, this is a time of remembering Jesus' broken body. Uh, we're about to pray, but I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and be ready for it to kind of lead us in a song of response. So this is what we're going to do. I would love for you to take, hopefully all of you have the cracker by now. Actually, if I could get one of each, that'd be great. I don't know if they're any handy. Um, otherwise, I'll pretend. Um, I would like, thank you very much. I would like you to hold the cracker. And, and I want to pray a prayer over and with us. Okay? So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, just as we acknowledged earlier, you are the king of everything. You are Lord of all. And yet, miraculously, you know every one of us where we're at. You know exactly what we're going through in this moment. You know what's going, going on in our minds. And right now, Father, I, I pray that you would settle our minds and we would find this, this center in you that we'd be able to focus on you. And right now, what we're focusing on is we are remembering your plan for our salvation, your plan to save us, your rescue plan for us to send your son Jesus, knowing that his body would be broken for us. We thank you and we remember right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the, the cracker together. The next verse is verse 27. And it describes, it says, He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Again, we described this last night. Uh, it doesn't seem fair that King David could be forgiven what he, for what he did. Or it, it doesn't feel like in our economy of justice, it doesn't feel like, like he's paid the price enough. That he has, has worked it out so that he could, be, could earn forgiveness. It feels like he, he doesn't deserve forgiveness. And if you're feeling that, you're absolutely right. And you might feel the same way about yourself. As you think about your worst, deepest, darkest moment, and you say to yourself, or you listen to the enemy who's saying it about you, saying, you can't be forgiven for that. That's too brutal. Like, yeah, maybe the person sitting next to you is, is they're, they're way better than you. They can be forgiven for gossiping or telling a white lie. But you did this, fill in the blank. You can't be forgiven for that. You can't earn God's mercy for that. And again, if you have that thought, you're right. But you're listening to the, to the wrong voice. Because what the Father is saying is that He's not looking at us and our sinfulness. What He's looking at is the blood of Jesus that was poured out over us. And because Jesus came and gave His life for us, 
His blood was shed. And now what the Father sees when he sees us is the blood of Jesus that we've been washed in. And, and no, it doesn't seem fair. But that is the power of the blood of Jesus. That is the power of God's forgiveness. That is the completeness of his forgiveness where he throws that sin as far as the east is from the west. And so let's pray and remember what Jesus did. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. Jesus, it amazes me that you knew what you're headed for. You even described that your body would be broken, your blood would be shed. And yet instead of acting in fear, you acted like a father and you taught us. You taught us to remember this moment and to kind of do a reset and refocus our eyes on you. Uh, for me personally, I'm just reminded right now that I am made totally clean, even though I don't deserve it. I could never earn it. I could never deserve it. But because of what you did on the cross, I am made clean. Jesus, I thank you. I can't thank you enough. Words aren't enough. But right now, we thank you and we remember what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Take the cup together. I think I better release you to the worship team to, to respond. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to sing. And you know what? My expectation, I know for myself, I have a different reason to sing now than I did before communion. Uh, th that moment of remembering why I can sing, why I have hope, it inspires me to sing. So let's sing, stand and sing together, and then I've got one more thing for you. You're worthy of it all. All right, let's finish. I, I would encourage you to kind of hold your hands out to receive this blessing. And it goes like this. May we, humble, we, may we be humble enough to return to the Father when we know that we've gone astray. May we be wise enough to know that He forgives us completely. And that's it. It's simple. Come in humility and receive His forgiveness. All right. Have a seat. And I've got some just general instructions. I'm, I'm not going to even try and compete any longer with the smells that are emanating from out there, the tacos that are there. Uh, I have just one comment about this. For, oh, well, actually, a couple comments. Uh, a, give generously. If you're donating and, and giving to get some, some tacos, give generously. That's something that's going to help send even more kids to camp. But the second thing is, we don't always get to be together. When we celebrate our anniversary, we're all going to be together. This is an extension of our Northridge family. And we don't always get to interact with them. But these are your brothers and sisters who you don't see every week. Learn their names. Acknowledge the fact that this is your family. These are your people. All right? Learn the names, but enjoy some food. Actually, let me just pray a blessing on this food. And as we go, Father, we thank you for good cooks. We thank you for good food. And we thank you for your, your ideal for community and fellowship. And I pray that this would lead to good conversations, to more swapping of stories and, and giving glory to you. Bless this food and this time in the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed and enjoy the tacos. Thank you for joining us for our main service. 
If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, or if you just want to talk to someone about what you've heard on this podcast, please email us at info at nrchurch.ca. We'd love to get to know you better. Until then, be safe and be blessed.